I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. I just finished talking with Sidney Blumenthal, and I know, depending on which cable network you prefer, he's someone you already likely either love or hate. But I'm telling you, regardless of where you fall, you're really going to like this conversation. We spoke because Sidney has a new book, and it's excellent. It's Wrestling with His Angel, The Political Life of Abraham Lincoln, Volume 2 from 1849 to 1856. He has two more volumes on this series on Abe Lincoln to go, and wait until you hear about his process. It's not what I thought it would be. The book isn't just a fascinating look back at our president-to-be living in one of the most compelling, dangerous times in our history. The book also is incredibly, almost scarily, relevant today. A divided country, intense fights over popular sovereignty, also known as states' rights, incredibly charged personalities, some of the most influential and divisive we've seen, people like Jefferson Davis, Stephen Douglas, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, and there are more. And then there's Lincoln himself. Blumenthal describes this as Lincoln's time in the wilderness, where he reads and thinks and, yes, follows politics intensely. This is the time when the coming American icon develops an extraordinary level of self-discipline. You can hardly hear that description of a future U.S. president without thinking about today. And as for President Donald Trump, yes, we talked about him, too, and about Hillary Clinton, and about confidential information. I came away from this book and conversation with an overwhelming thought, one for which we should not need reminding, but in case we do, here it is. Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. As for Sidney Blumenthal's biography, he's been on the political scene for so long that you might not know the details. He is, or has been, assistant and senior advisor to President Bill Clinton, senior advisor to Hillary Clinton, writer, journalist, editor at the Washington Post, the New Yorker, the New Republic, and other places, author of 11 books, and executive producer of Academy Award and Emmy Award winning Taxi to the Dark Side, a documentary that explored the American military's use of torture by focusing on the unsolved murder of an Afghani taxi driver. But we started the conversation by talking about Abraham Lincoln and about Sidney's book. Let's get to it. Sydney, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate your time. I'm glad to be here. And congratulations. The book is getting excellent reviews. So you are two books into a four-book series, about a thousand words, probably a little bit more, and you're only halfway home. How are you feeling so far? Well, um, you know, it's um, <laughs> uh, it's about a million words, and uh, I am... Um, I'm ready for the next two. I'm ready to uh, get to the end. I, I have actually written um, all the way to the end. I'm rewriting volume three right now, uh, and I'll look at volume four. Um, I wrote the whole thing all the way through um, uh, and then went back to the beginning, having realized what I'd done and uh, how I had done it, and uh, started rewriting. So. Uh, it's a crazy process, um, but uh, I think I've gotten closer to Lincoln as a result. That's actually that's a really interesting process. So, was it always four books, or was it not broken into four until you finished draft one and then thought about how uh, how to how to shape it? I didn't know what it was. Uh, it, I didn't know it, how many books it was. I just kept writing, and. Um, I had not, uh, I didn't have a contract, um, I hadn't shown it to um, a publisher, I was um, doing this um, entirely on my own. 
um, uh, until I showed it to um, Alice Mayhew, uh, the editor at uh, Simon & Schuster, and Jonathan Karp, who's the president of Simon & Schuster. They're the ones who told me, initially they told me uh, uh, this would be three volumes um, once they looked at it. And uh, for some reason, these books seem to be uh, reproducing in the dark, so it turned into four. <laughs> did, did you always did Did you always know that you wanted to write about Lincoln, or did they did they help you? You know, did they kind of give you the, this bright idea? Hey, Sydney, why, why don't you go write something on on Abe Lincoln? We've never seen anything on him before. Or where, where did the idea come from originally? Uh, I uh, have always been Lincoln centric and obsessed with Lincoln. Um, uh, as a boy, I was taken to Springfield uh, by uh, an older family member um, and made my pilgrimage. It made a large impression on me. I grew up in Chicago, and um, I read uh, the Sandberg books as a boy. Um, and I've always, I've always been um, reading about and thinking about uh, Lincoln. Uh, um, at some point after I left uh, working in the White House with President Clinton, I um, thought of writing a book about uh, the recent history of racial politics and presidents from uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt, um, uh, then um, you know through uh, Clinton, and um, how the parties had been transformed um, as a result. Uh, and I kept falling farther and farther into the past until I got to Lincoln because I couldn't figure it out. And um, as I read about the war, the Civil War, I fell back even farther into trying to figure out um, how Lincoln got to his politics. And um, once I was down the rabbit hole, I never left it. And I've been now in this rabbit hole for about 10 years. Well, that was... <laughs> Yeah, well, at some point, I guess there's a, a light at the end of the rabbit hole tunnel. But uh, you know, please, you know, fi- finish finish editing those last two before you know before you go on and, and do anything else. Um, you know, I'm I'm struck by something you you just said because that was what I, as a reader, one of the things I took away from this volume of of uh, your series, and that was that period. I mean, that that it, it, what an extraordinary period. You know this eight, four, 1849 to fifty six, and for me the book I, I really was reading two things, and you may have meant it this way. Maybe you meant you know for five things to be read, but I'm only smart enough to get two of them. Um, one was the period itself, and I want to ask you about that. And and the other, of course, was you, you know you get an incredible sense of um, Lincoln, and um, you know maybe you realized this already given your uh, history of, of following him and reading about him, and and you know that you were so. Uh, into Lincoln, but um, it seems like so much of the writing and storytelling around Lincoln historically characterizes this period as his down years, almost like a a blue period, and and that's not the story that you tell at all. Um, how, how do you describe these years uh, when he's wrestling with his angel? Well, um, uh, first of all, the title comes from the um, the the Bible. It's the it's the story of Jacob who wrestles through a night with an angel and. Um, comes away um, having realized um, um, who he is, and he adopts a new name. The name that he adopts is Israel. Um, and for Lincoln, this is this is his long night of wrestling with his angel. Um, it's his wilderness years, um, 
but he's not in a cave. Um, he is completely conscious of all the politics around him. Um, even though he later says he was almost out of politics. Lincoln was never out of politics. Um, he's paying very close attention to a world in which, first, um, things are very bleak, and he's filled with political despair. He's a stalwart Whig. Um, the Democrats are dominant. Uh, they've won in the largest landslide in American history, 1852, Franklin Pierce is president. Uh, um, the Whigs will never run another candidate for president. Um, 1850. Uh, so Lincoln's in despair. He watches the scene. Um, the um, 1854, his uh, perennial rival, of whom he is enormously envious, uh, Stephen A. Douglas, who's a meteor across the sky, a uh, senator, um, um, who was talked of as um, the young, uh, uh, great possibility for the Democratic Party. Uh, who has run already once for president and uh, is running it always for president, out of his ambition, proposes the Kansas-Nebraska Act that winds up repealing the Missouri Compromise and with and erasing the line across the center of the country, north of which slavery is prohibited. So the extension of slavery becomes a very live issue. Lincoln becomes alive. But even before then, Lincoln is, is an enormously self disciplined, self-educating man who is paying the closest attention to all the politics and framing arguments even when he's not making them. Uh, and uh, when he gets his moment, uh, he distills everything that has happened to him during this wilderness period um, at, uh, for the moment when he steps on the public stage and never leaves it. Yeah, you get the sense um, that he – could he have been prepared? Could he have become who he became without this period, without that self-discipline, without the reflection, without the the reading and the studying and the, the math and, and, and all that? I mean did he need this period of self-discipline to become who he became? Well, the Lincoln we know in history is the Lincoln that emerges from this from this time. Uh, and um, it's, uh, I mean, he really goes through a, um, uh, a crucible of personal tragedy. His young son, Edward, dies. Um, his political career uh, seems to be at an end. Um, he's very obscure, and yet he uh, sees... Um, he, he learns a lot. He, he learns a lot of things about the world that he's paying close attention to. He knows that dem democracy is in crisis. He knows that um, in um, um, extending slavery, there are many people who openly um, uh, ridicule the Declaration of Independence, the idea that all men are created equal, on the floor of the Senate. Um, he knows that democracy in the West, throughout Europe, is, uh, been, has been suppressed through the failed revolutions of 1848. That's important to Lincoln. He sees democracy in an international framework with the United States as, as he puts it, a, a place that should be the leading liberal party in the world. Um, that's what he meant when he said that the United States was the last best hope of Earth. He meant it in a very concrete way. Uh, and he learns that in this period when he's 
just in his law office on you know on the second story of a building in downtown Springfield. Um, he's thinking about the world. He so um, all of this comes to Lincoln and prepares him for this moment. So you you just hit on, and and this is something I was uh, looking to talk about as well. Um, And and I wonder to what extent, I mean, you wrote this over several years, you just indicated. So um, it's impossible to read uh, the book and some of the phrases you even just used in in your last explanation, democracy and crisis and an international framework and the leading liberal light and and all. It's it's impossible to read, and and Lincoln as self-disciplined. And, and the role that self-discipline plays in um, forming who he becomes. It's kind of um, impossible to read the book without also thinking about uh, the current day. Um, you know, I, I don't know when you exactly you started writing, but did you is that has that come to mind? Has that come into greater relief um, as the time has passed since when you started to write this? Uh, what, what well, I finished this volume um before Trump's election. Yeah. So Trump was not in my mind in writing. But even maybe the sense of where the country was going or where society, the, the tensions in society, I mean, did any of that come to you? I mean, there are lots of lessons from this period. Yeah. Um, uh, and there are lessons about um, uh, the disintegration of the political parties and the inadequacy of the existing parties uh, when they're long term coalitions no longer make sense because they were framed uh, under um, different circumstances and the circumstances have changed. Um, um, The crisis of democracy is not something new. Um, It's something that afflicted the United States um, uh, uh, in Lincoln's uh, period before the Civil War that helped make Lincoln and it was an international problem, as he understood it, um, and a very particular problem in the United States um, uh, when the very idea of democracy was um, was was attacked under assault uh, by uh, uh, the slave power in the South, uh, and uh, um, uh, and Lincoln redefines politics. That's how he becomes uh, an emergent leader. He sees these new circumstances. Um, the Lincoln of the second um, a message to the Congress of 1862 who says we must think anew and act anew and then we shall save our country. That's the Lincoln of, um, of this period, which is the preceding decade. He is thinking anew and then acting anew and reframing politics, which is why he's able to create out of this whirlwind a new political party in Illinois, the Republican Party that didn't exist uh, before. Um, The question of self-discipline is a really interesting uh, question, uh, particularly now. Uh, For for Lincoln, the question of individual uh, self-discipline would have been uh, related to the question of self-government. And um, it's the very you know, idea at the core of the United States and uh, his understanding of the constitutional order. It was related. He's somebody who came from 
a dirt poor background and rose as a result of his own self discipline and became a self made man that 's the title of my first volume um, that 's his idea also of free labor, which is the great cause he takes up and it means more than simply you wage your salary labor it means that you are a free man um, as opposed to the, the slave order um, and it's related to the very idea of democracy. So Lincoln, I think, would have had an, um, a, a sense in which his whole political development was related to his whole, um, uh, uh, I don't know if I said political, but I meant his personal development would have been completely related to his political development. He was of a piece. It was a very coherent outlook that he had another aspect that uh you know in connecting that period and and today and the times that we're living in um this issue of popular sovereignty um which of course uh you know dealt with the kansas nebraska act and and dealt with uh you know uh, significant portions of the 1850 compromise and 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 we'll talk about that in a moment um, how did you think about popular sovereignties? I was thinking about it in, in reading more about those times through, through your book. Um, it struck me that there may be no issue more at the heart of the ongoing American tension than that one. I mean, I, you know, you think about the Federalist Papers, you think about these questions of slavery, you think about Supreme Court nominees and education, and most recently even the, the handling of high-risk health care pools. I mean, th- this question of... Um, states' rights and and being able to make decisions, the tension between, you know, what is good at the state level versus what is good at the federal level, um, so so powerful in American history. Um, did you? How did you connect that uh, from then and and thinking about it in terms of today? Well, um, Lincoln was somebody who believed in the federal union um, and. Uh, he always believed in it. As a young man, he memorized uh, Senator Daniel Webster's famous speech about the federal union um, uh, as opposed to states' rights. It was a constitutional argument. Was the United States created by the whole people? And then in creating the Constitution, gave power to the states, which only exist as a matter of the Constitution. Lincoln was a, uh, was somebody who believed in the, fe- uh, the Webster federal union point of view. As it happens, that's a point of view that uh, was also adopted by President Andrew Jackson, who um, uh, Donald Trump has um, uh, very lately uh, announced is his um, icon. But Jackson, in his proclamation against nullification, um, uh, said that offered the constitutional theory that Lincoln believed in, that Webster believed in, and um, denied that the states had any primacy, and certainly any primacy to nullify any act of the federal government. Um, That document, the proclamation against nullification, was a document that Lincoln kept on his uh, desk when uh, he was dealing with the secession crisis. And um, that's why there is a portrait of, um, of Jackson that hung in his study and appears in the famous uh, painting of uh, Lincoln and his cabinet uh, when he was presenting the Emancipation Proclamation. 
So why is there a picture of a slaveholder on the wall? And that's the reason. Um, and there were many Jacksonians, people who were very close to Andrew Jackson, including Francis P. Blair, who owned Blair House across from the White House, um, who were founders of the Republican Party and advisors to Abraham Lincoln as well as to Andrew Jackson. Uh, so this is a very... Um, the, the strands of these arguments um, don't simply exist in one time. They have great continuity, and they shift, and they change, and continue to our own day. And the names that were, um, you know, making these statements and driving the policy and uh, of that day, that that hit me as well. And you know, I hadn't spent time thinking as well and realizing the literary figures, the you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne and Harriet Beecher Stowe, and and you know, the time of Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, in conjunction, you know, on the on the literary side, can you know, in conjunction with the. Um, you know Stephen Douglas and Jefferson Davis and Henry Clay and Daniel Webster and and I mean it's a it's it's an incredible period of Americanism. I mean in a way, um, really really evolving the definition, the self definition of of who we are. Um, I was struck by that by the 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 power of personalities um, across so many different uh, disciplines at that time. Um, an important well, well, it's a rich cultural time, and, yeah. uh, and, and the culture is not separate from, you know, the, n- not only the social life of the country, of this, you know, young country in constant formation, but also the political life. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne is the uh, college uh, classmate of Franklin Pierce and his biographer and friend, uh, writes his, you know, campaign biography. Um, um, has a view that nothing can ruin Franklin Pierce, who is who's, who is ruined in his presidency. Uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe um, writes Uncle Tom's Cabin in response to the Compromise of 1850 and the passage of the Federal uh, Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, she dramatizes uh, through the story of uh, of slaves. You know wh- what's wrong with this Federal Fugitive Slave Act and slavery itself. Um, some of the elements uh, in the in the in her book, some of the episodes are based on actual law cases in which um, uh, um, at least two members of Lincoln's cabinet participated: uh, William Henry Seward, who became Secretary of State, and uh, Salmon P. Chase, who became Secretary of Treasury, were lawyers in a, a fugitive slave case that is fictionalized in Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, Lincoln, of course, greeted uh, uh, Henry Beecher Stowe in the White House and said, so here's the little lady who started the war. Uh, so the cultural, uh, you know, these, these they have a, the, the cultural um, impact of Uncle Tom's Cabin or other figures is enormous um, uh, in this period, as, as, it, as, as it is in our own. Yeah, well, the intersection of the two um, certainly comes alive, and and yes, that quote. I guess uh, uh, you said it was uh, um, Stowe's son who relayed the that that quote that uh, supposedly Harry uh, Lincoln said to Harry Beecher Stowe in the in the White House of uh, here's the the woman or the little woman that uh, started the war. Um, that's a it's a great detail. Um, now, now, look, you, you got to uh, you got to shoot straight with me. You said that uh, th- this was not, you know, this was written before Trump, and and obviously there's so much of it that uh, connects. But the, chapter three is the art of the deal, 
And at, at the same time, that, that Stephen Douglas is securing the 1950 compromise, uh, the 1850 compromise, and I realize it's Clay's compromise, but it seems that, that Douglas did so much of the work in breaking the issues down into their component parts. At that same time that he's doing that, Douglas, and in, in the way that you tell the story, um, is simultaneously trying to enrich himself by buying land in Chicago alongside the proposed Illinois Central Railroad. So I, I, I realize you wrote this before Trump, but you named the title that chapter's the art of the deal. When when did you do that, Sydney? Um, yeah, I retitled some of the chapters uh, last year during the campaign, and uh, many of them have resonances with. Uh, you know, I'm playing around here. Uh, I One of them is called The Art of the Deal, obviously, after uh, Trump's book. One of them is called The Consequences of the Peace, after John Maynard Keynes' book about the Versailles Treaty. There's one called White Negroes. Actually, the phrase appears in that chapter, White Negroes, yes. incredibly enough. And um, that was a famous essay by Norman Mailer uh, in its day, What is to be Done, which is a phrase that Lincoln says, incredibly, was the most famous... Uh, book uh, written by uh, Lenin. Uh, but the, the art of the deal deals with the, the consummate deal maker of his day, uh, uh, Stephen A. Douglas, who passed the Compromise of 1850 and the Illinois Central Railroad Act um, um, through his mastery of uh, legislative uh, skill, uh, uh, control of the lobbies, uh, and financial power. Uh, and by the way, uh, enriched himself um, by, you know, having the right-of-way real estate he owned on the lakeshore of Chicago sold to the uh, Illinois Central in, in the process. Now, not many people may also realize that among the books you've written was one titled The Permanent Campaign. I think it was your first one, um, and that was in 1980. Um, just tying things to, to today a little bit, and it's, it is kind of incredible to me, um, how many themes resonate from uh, the Lincoln book uh, to today and then, then this one that you wrote as well. Um, did you uh, ever envision what we have today in terms of permanent campaigning, and um, is there any way to stop it? Well, I don't believe that there's any way to stop it. Um, um, I wrote that book. I wrote a book called The Permanent Campaign in 1980 um, at the, uh, during the... Reagan presidential campaign and as the Carter presidency was faltering and dealt with the rise of political consultants um, based on uh, polling and um, media. Um, and it was the beginning of um, computerization of data as well and its relation to all that. And I believe it was that the technology was transforming politics that the I grew up in Chicago. My first um, uh, political experience was as a runner for my precinct captain, um, and that was the old political machine. Um, and th it was being eclipsed by this new kind of politics. Uh, and uh, it's n it no more can go away than the technology can go away. And I believe that um, not only was the campaign permanent, but that the um, techniques of campaigning would be introduced into governing, which, as we saw, um, um, takes on all kinds of different permutations depending upon the uh, political figure and certainly in different presidencies. And I think it will no more go away 
then computers will be uninvented. Uh, and I, I, while I have you, I, I have to ask you as well, obviously being so close um, you know, in, in, to Hillary Clinton and, and seeing what we all saw her going through in terms of uh, you know, the handling of uh, you know, the emails and the, the classified information, um, did you fall off your chair at the uh, um, you know, report that uh, President Trump had shared classified information? I mean, is that, uh, does that define irony for somebody like you, or did you uh, not really have a reaction and you just kind of carry on? I have to say that um, while um, every single incident of what Trump does and the exposure of it is shocking, um, and um, unexpected and novel. I mean, um, and leads one to say, who could make that up? Um, um, there's also an element of unsurprise, <laughs> of not being astonished at the um, absolute um, uh, ignorance and inability um, to have a learning curve um, at all. Um, uh, and um, this is um, the incident involving um, his disclosure of the most um, classified information to the Russian foreign minister and ambassador um, can't be malicious on his part, but is more pathological. It's a need to impress. It's his... Um, his narcissism, his need to boast, um, and that's incurable. And just to close out, given that there's so much from the book and from those times that it does end up being relevant, a lot of it made me think more deeply and, and differently about much that's going on today. What guidance would Lincoln give? We talk about, you know, we have a red state and blue state today that we're a divided country. You could hardly have a more divided country than we had in the 1850s leading up to a terrible part in our history, the Civil War, although uh, defeated slavery. What would Lincoln say today? Well, um, Lincoln, in this, in the, in the, in the period before the Civil War, was fighting what he considered to be an overwhelmingly dominant force that was undermining democracy. That was the slave power. Um, there was a struggle over who would uh, control the country. Um, as he said um, um, in his um, House Divided speech, a House Divided Against Self. Um, cannot stand. It will either become all one thing or all the other. Um, and um, I don't know that one election has decided that any more than, say, the election of 1856 that elected James Buchanan decided the resolution in Lincoln's day. Um, Lincoln also said um, in his Cooper Union speech, uh, pointed out all the arguments that were being made against the anti-slavery forces um, and even pointed out uh, all the smears that were being made against them. Uh, that he, um, uh, and um, he ends by saying um, that, uh, uh, that we should always believe in, in, the, in the faith that right makes might. That's, that is a, um, 
that's a fundamental sense of um, his politics. It's um, it is a politics, but it is also based on um, a rock solid principle. So I think that's what Lincoln would offer here. Thank you. Well, there's uh, um, there, there's so much there, and uh, it's a it's a great read on a historical front, um, and it's a great read as well um, in terms of uh, you know helping think about uh, times of today. Um, so uh, uh, go ahead. You you got it. You you've got some editing to do. You've got uh, several uh, several hundred thousand words. It sounds like to bring down into two two volumes. Um, and uh, folks are waiting for you. Um, uh, I'm going to return to the 19th century now. <laughs> Excellent. Sydney. thank you. But it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thank you. That was my conversation with Sidney Blumenthal. The book is an important read. We're a divided country today, and we desperately need leadership of a different kind to become our better selves. There's a lot to take from this extraordinary and troubling period in the mid-19th century and from Lincoln. My thanks to Sydney for joining me and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Mm-hmm.